Prudent Money with Bob Brooks is sponsored by the Prudent Money Foundation on 91.3. Well, today, seven gray swans, trends that threaten our financial future. Stay tuned for Prudent Money. This is Bob Brooks, and you are listening to the Prudent Money Radio Show. Thank you so much for joining me today, and you know I do appreciate it. Well, what is a gray swan, and why is it important that you know? Today, author and CEO of Crown Financial Ministries, Chuck Bentley, is my guest to talk about his new book, Seven Gray Swans, Trends That Threaten Our Financial Future. Chuck, welcome to Prudent Money. Hi, Bob. Great to be with you. You know, first of all, Chuck, I want to thank you for the work uh, that, that you've been doing at Crown Financial Ministries. I've had the opportunity to teach Crown classes for years and have watched as it has changed and transformed lives as people get the true meaning of stewardship. And I just want to thank you for your ministry. Well, thank you, Bob, and thank you for being a part of it. I started out as a volunteer just like you. <laughs> I would uh, say I'm a part of that group that was transformed, and so it's a it's a pleasure to be on the program today. Well, let's talk a little bit about swans. You know, the concept of a black swan is something that you may hear in the financial media. It's defined as an unpredictable event that potentially has severe consequences. Now, talk a little bit about what a gray swan is, because I'm sure that's something that we haven't uh, are not familiar with. Well, in contrast to a black swan, which is unpredictable, a gray swan is pretty much out in the open. It's something that we can see, we can measure, we know that it's a risk, but we tend to ignore it. So, uh, you know, this whole uh, short squeeze with GameStop that just happened that sort of shook up the markets, uh, that was a gray swan. We knew it was possible for those type of activities to take place, but nobody ever thought that it really would happen like that. So gray swans have significant impact on, on the economy and over our personal finances, but we tend to think, well, since it's not going to happen, I can just forget about it. Now, what's interesting in the book, you say that the financial crisis of 08 was a gray swan. Talk about how you come to that conclusion. Well, nobody ever thought that we would hear the day that the president of the United States would stand before us and say, our economy is about to implode. Uh, that was a surreal moment. Uh, we thought that the strength of the U.S. economy was a fortress that would never be penetrated. And so it was uh, unprecedented. Uh, you know, no gurus at the time thought that it would actually happen that way. There were a few exceptions, as you know about, Bob, say uh, Michael Burry and the Big Short, who mm-hmm. he really strongly believed it. But he was in a, in a vast minority of, of experts who saw that one. So I think that was a black swan. Uh, and one that even the federal government, through an investigation, said, uh, you know, they didn't see it coming, but somebody should have. And you also mentioned uh, COVID-19. I thought this was interesting. Is it a black swan event or a gray swan event? Well, I put it in the gray swan category, although it's debatable. It's a gray swan because we've had pandemics for centuries. We, we, we knew they were possible, but I think like most people, we never thought that it would come to the United States and certainly never thought it would last to the extent that it has. Now, you make a comment in the book that the seven trends that you write about is not the entire list of things that we should be concerned with. There are actually more than seven trends. These are just ones that, well, that you landed on. 
Yes, that's correct. And I am not uh, a, an economic expert like you. I went to Baylor, Bob, and I had a great economics professor at Baylor, but I barely got out of the class. I just wasn't <laughs> paying attention like I should have. Uh, and uh, what I realized is that gray swans actually impact our personal lives. Uh, I was at Baylor when a group of students took uh, 52 Americans hostage at the embassy in Iran, and uh, that created an oil embargo, which caused the price of oil to go sky high in Texas. So an oil boom was on. My father's in the oil business. We were going strong until the hostages were released and the oil embargo was lifted and the price of oil plummeted and I was laid off. So suddenly those gray swan events uh, became very personal. You know, it's interesting. Your book gives some meaning to a verse that I mention a lot on the show. In fact, found word for word two times in the book of Proverbs. A prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. And I think the, the concept of gray swans helps a person foresee danger and most importantly to take precautions, which you go over in the book. Yet most people, like you say, they do ignore what is happening right before their very eyes and take, you know, just take the, the, the blunt hint of the consequences. Well, I feel like the, the pilot of an airplane who comes on the loudspeaker system and says, ladies and gentlemen, uh, fasten your seatbelts. There's turbulence ahead. <laughs> And you, you hope that uh, it's not going to be bad. You hope that maybe he was wrong. You hope they can fly around it. But you go ahead and put on your seatbelt. And this is not to alarm people. It's not to use uh, manipulation of the headlines. It's simply to say these are some very real things happening right now. We can all see them. I'm no prophet. Uh, these are not complex things to understand. They're happening, and we need to fasten our financial seatbelt. You know, I want to mention, uh, Chuck, that the book is, is a quick read. It's about 110 pages. It's a smaller book. And uh, I think uh, and a very important read that people should get the book and, and understand because it gives you a, a look at what are some of the things that we need to be make sure that we have our house in order and be ready for so it doesn't sneak up on us. Uh, one of the uh, – let's start with the very first one, Universal Basic Income. Now, this is something that I can, I can definitely see coming because, you know, if you consider the over 70 million people who've been laid off and applied for unemployment benefits over the past year, uh, you know, it's kind of a stealth unemployment problem because you've, you've, the government's been continuing to, to pay out unemployment business uh, benefits. But this isn't going to go away r real soon, and some program has, has to help the masses. You know, talk about what universal ba uh, basic income looks like. Well, UBI, or Universal Basic Income, is the idea that all people qualify for a subsistence uh, level of payment. It's, you know, some, some standard uh, without any type of, uh, I, I guess, any type of qualification. I said that a little bit of a redundancy. It's a no-qualifying uh, monthly stipend from the government. Uh, Vice Pre or presidential candidate Andrew Yang placed his entire platform in this idea that if he were elected, everyone would receive a Patriot dividend of a thousand dollars a month. So it's 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 supplementing income. The the motivation for it is to bring about equality and to help ride out the bumps in the ups and downs of an economy. And look, uh, in the book I write about Bob that it's actually. Uh, appealing to many, many people. And so they have to ask, why in the world would you be against it? Well, 
for, for number one, we have to have a way to pay for it. <laughs> the analogy I used is it's like declaring that uh, we're all lottery winners, but we didn't have to buy a lottery ticket. So there's no money coming in for the money that's going out. So the, the math just doesn't work. Secondly, I think it removes the dignity of work. You know, one of the greatest joys in our life is an earned achievement. They say generosity and earned achievement are the two biggest sources of joy for any person. And earned achievement comes through work. And I don't view mankind as a consumer that just needs to be appeased, that they have no value to add to the world. I believe God created us to be producers. And when we go to work and we produce, then we find satisfaction. That's how God provides for our needs. So I'm against the universal basic income, Bob, for, you know, just those two apparent reasons. Well, what do you say to the person who says, absolutely, Chuck, no way, not in a million years could this happen? Well, it's happening already. I mean, I have to tell you, I qualified for a stimulus check. I qualified for the second one, and I'm probably going to get a third one, Bob, and I'm embarrassed (laughs) that the government is sending me money. But the dilemma and what makes this such a, a sticky wicket is, Uh, What do you do? Do you just write them and say, hey, please exclude me. I don't want it. Do you send it back? Uh, What what we've chosen to do is to use those funds charitably and to advance God's kingdom with them. Uh, But look, it's hard money to turn down, and it's a very difficult program to stop once it gets underway. There's no evidence in history that governments stop foolish programs. Well, the next Grace Swan you write about is a cashless society. Now, the reality of this Grace Swan is that we're almost already to the point of being a cashless society. How do we transition fully to that point, and what does this type of economy actually look like, Chuck? Well, cashless society means there there is no currency in, in use, no, none in circulation whatsoever. In the Scandinavian countries right now, Bob, they're issuing card readers for the homeless. And the reason they're doing that is they're, you know, people aren't carrying around cash to put in their, uh, the hands of the homeless. And so they literally are approaching a total cashless society. Uh, especially during COVID, Bob, this became relevant because people are declaring that cash is dirty and some institutions now only want electronic transactions. We're seeing the rise of cryptocurrencies. We're seeing the convenience of online banking. And what's happening is this gray swan is slowly being adopted worldwide. And in a, in, a, in a country like China or India, where there is very little trust in the way the government might control your life, uh, you're surrendering all of your economic privacy to the government. And so I think it's a big concern and one that we all need to be aware of and have some contingency plans. Yeah, I guess it's one of those things that it seems like, wow, that's that's a great idea. But it does definitely have some downside to it, and especially the fact that we're making government bigger, giving more back to government through control. Well, most young people believe that, that they it can't get here fast enough. <laughs> you know, they're transferring money uh, through their mobile phones all the time, and it's very comfortable for them. What they're not concerned about is what I am concerned about, which is a loss of privacy. I think cash uh, and any type of physical currency gives you the ability to make decisions with money that no one else is tracking, and and not that you want to do something illegal with it, but you want the privacy and the freedom that comes with making up your own mind and not having to be concerned about if your account is blocked or tracked or any of the things that would uh, 
take away the freedom that we have. This is Bob Brooks, and you are listening to the Prudent Money Radio Show. Thank you so much for joining me today, talking to Chuck Bentley about a great book that he's put together called Seven Gray Swans, Trends That Threaten Our Financial Future. This is a quick, informative read and something that I think everybody should be looking at. If you want more information on the book, go to www.crown.org. Now, the next gray swan is the world of modern monetary theory. And I got to tell you, Chuck, I, this is something that everybody sees. They they think, well, how in the world can the can the uh, government continue to push out all this money through stimulus checks and do all these programs, and we're and we're still borrowing and we're still printing money? It just doesn't seem like it's a good idea. Talk a little bit about that. Well, the reason that it's happening is there are people who actually think that it's possible for the United States government print all the money that it wants to print and to create all the deficits that it needs to function as a as a as a uh, government without any recourse without any concern whatsoever and that's exactly how we're operating there's a, a noted economist named Dr. Stephanie Kelton who wrote a book called The Deficit Myth and her premise with MMT which some unflatteringly call the monopoly money theory or the magic money theory her premise is the United States can operate just like the bank in the game of monopoly, that it can just uh, push all the money into the system that it wants. But you and I know, and this dissonance that I think every American is feeling is, it's got to stop. At some point, we can't keep living beyond our means. It defies gravity. And where the point that it stops is the day that we lose confidence in our currency, all currencies are valued only by the confidence that people place in them. And my thesis is that if we continue to pump money into the system, people are going to consider it worthless one day. You know, I keep a, a $100 trillion bill from Zimbabwe uh, in my Bible to remind me that $100 trillion couldn't buy toilet paper in Zimbabwe. It became worthless. And we're on that kind of trajectory right now. But isn't it interesting, though, that we could still be on be in this situation, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now with no consequences? It's possible that it's going to continue that way. They've done it that way in Japan. One of the differences between the American economy and the Japanese economy is that the Japanese have a very high personal savings rate. And so they're prepared for some of the shocks that have occurred in their system. In America, in contrast, we have a very low personal savings rate. And so we're not nearly as prepared for the devaluation of our currency as happened in Japan. But uh, it could go on for a long time. And look, I'm don't, I do not think we're going to go through a currency collapse. I think we're going to go through uh, uh, probably the, my best guess, Bob, is uh, hyperinflation or at least very, very high levels of inflation. Uh, and I think that there, there's uh, justification for that from some deep economic thinkers that are much smarter than me. Let's talk about the next great swan, American Democratic Socialism. I mean, everything changed in November. And, you know, interesting enough, I think, and get your thoughts on this, we're already practicing socialism in so many aspects of the economy and people just don't realize it. Talk a little bit about the dangers of socialism. Well, Bob, I've traveled the world and seen socialism in action. And look, I'm not talking about a political philosophy. I'm talking about a departure from the economic system that runs our nation, which is capitalism. And uh, socialism is a philosophy of centralized control over the economy. 
And the idea is that uh, it creates equality, that it helps uh, ride out the, you know, the, the disparity between the rich and the poor. And certainly we have a huge disparity. But the government is a terrible arbiter of that disparity. Uh, the only difference between capitalism and socialism, it's not that there's no longer rich and poor. It's just that you're allowing the government to decide who is rich and who is poor. Uh, in capitalism, it's based on a merit uh, and not on uh, a third party making those determinations. And, and it's destructive. Uh, there's, there's just example after example of a socialistic philosophy that sounds so good and so charitable and so kind and compassionate being adopted and then bringing about not equality of incomes, but equality of misery. Talk a little bit about what the Bible says about socialism. And this, I want to point this out, is that you give kind of a biblical meaning to the seven grace, the seven grace ones in the book. But talk about it specifically about socialism. Well, I think many well-meaning Christians confuse the role of a private individual that has the responsibility to care for the poor and to be generous with the role of the government. Uh, there, you know, in the in the example of the uh, the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, you know, he took care of his neighbor personally and privately. He didn't say, well, this guy's on the side of the road hurting, needs health care, let's pass a law for universal health care. He took money out of his own pocket and took care of an individual. And the Bible does not support socialism in any way or form. It supports private property rights. In fact, the Tenth Commandment tells us not to covet what your neighbor has. And I believe that commandment was given so that we would get our eyes off of looking at what somebody else has and just be content with what God has entrusted mm-hmm. to us. And in a sense, socialism is legalizing coveting. Very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the socialism movement, the socialistic movement, I guess you'd say. And, um, you know, I, I've always looked at what, who's, with Biden being in the White House, is kind of social, socialism light. Do you think that uh, we could really move down that spectrum to where we're looking at some of these progressive ideas being adopted? Oh, I think there's no doubt about it, uh, Bob. It's, the idea's been around for a long time, and it's being taught in our educational systems as something that's good. I, I like to tell young people that, Robin Hood is a, is a fairy tale. The idea of taking from the rich and distributing to the poor, it was based on a fairy tale, and in reality it does not work. But unfortunately you're seeing all the surveys indicate that young people think that it's a good idea, and people like me sound like we're, we are selfish and, uh, and we lack compassion. But the truth for me is I believe capitalism provides a much better solution for the poor uh, in the long term for them to benefit. And it also has to be accompanied with the private convictions that come from God's Word that we as individuals are to have the responsibility to close the wealth gap and to help others succeed by what we teach them about managing resources and if they're unable to work, how we treat them charitably. You also talk about the Grace One social scoring and biometric ID. I got to tell you, Chuck, now you, you completely got outside of my wheelhouse. Talk about what this is and what this entails, because I really haven't thought a whole lot about it. Well, Bob, I've traveled throughout the world, and in China right now, they've implemented a program called Social Scoring, and they use your 
biometric ID, which is either your, your facial recognition software or your iris and your fingerprint combined, also being used in India. And so you have to have a biometric ID to get a tax refund. If you're on a welfare program in, by the government, you have to have one. And now you have to have one to have access to buildings or to get on an airplane. And what they've done in those countries is they've combined this social score with the credit score. So, for instance, if you post something negative online about the government, your social score goes down, and so does your credit score. Mm. And ultimately, even if you have dogs that are barking loud late at night and your neighbor reports you, your, credit, uh, your social score goes down. And ultimately, uh, you, they will deny you access to buildings, access to flights, even access to your own bank accounts. Right now in China, if you want to get money out of an ATM machine, you have to stand in front of the camera and they look at your face and they determine whether or not they're going to open the machine or not. And it's up to them. And so we think, well, that is some crazy far-fetched idea that would never happen here. But it's already beginning to happen in the private sector. For instance, if I ride an Uber, I, I rate the driver, but the driver rates me. And if <laughs> I get a low enough score and they don't like me, Ultimately, they can shut me out of their system completely, no questions asked. The same with VRBO, the same with Twitter. All these uh, platforms are now developing the attitude that uh, if they don't want you, they're going to shut you out. And ultimately, I believe social scoring is going to come to this country. We only have about a minute left, but I want you to, to comment on this. You give a lot of practical advice at the end of the book, and I want to get your views on stewardship. I mean, how important are the principles of stewardship when it comes to these gray swans? After all, being in relationship with Christ is the safest place we can be. Well, the church is anti-fragile. Everything else in the world is fragile, but we've built our financial house on a rock, and that doesn't mean we won't get storms. That's, you know, both in that parable— whether your house on the rock or the sand, you get the same storm, but only one of those will stand. And I think stewardship uh, presents that kind of biblical foundation to build our lives upon. The Bible teaches us how to make money, how to manage it, how to use it wisely, how to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, and how not to fear whatever may come in our life, how to actually be able to face these problems without any type of concern, because God is our provider and he will always be faithful. Those principles are life-altering in the way we view money and the way we manage it, Bob. Once again, the name of Chuck's book is Seven Gray Swans, Trends That Threaten Our Financial Future. More information, www.crown.org. Chuck, it was a real pleasure to have you on the program, and congratulations on a great book. Keep up the good work, Bob. Thank you for having me today. Thank you. This is Bob Brooks, and you are listening to the Prudent Money Radio Show. Like I said, this book is literally 106 pages and just full of eye-opening information that, that speaks to the way that you deal with whatever comes our way in the future financially is to get your financial house in order. And to do that, I believe you got to look towards this, the principles of stu uh, prudent stewardship and build that foundation so that you can handle whatever comes our way. And uh, interesting stuff. Once again, uh, seven gray swans, trends that threaten our financial future, www.crown.org. This is Bob Brooks. If you've got any questions for me, please go to the website at prudentmoney.com and send it in because we are all out of time. Till we do meet again next time, keep the faith and have a great rest of the day.
that's all the time we have for today. Questions or comments for Bob or to find out more great information like what you've just heard, visit www.prudentmoney.com. Be sure to join Bob Brooks again for the next edition of Prudent Money.